phone call every parent dreads. The one in which a doctor says, we did everything we could. I remember the anguished cry of a mother, the piercing wail of a sister, the traumatized face of another sister who had watched her brother fall to the ground and die before her eyes. I also remember love. Friends hastened to our side, summoned by the only words we could speak, we need you. As we wept together, they began to comfort and console us, to speak the highest truths to our deepest sorrows. A mighty chorus of prayer began to be lifted to the heavens on our behalf. When the sorrow was still new in my heart, when the tears were still fresh in my eyes, when I barely knew up from down, I began to write. I had to know what to think and what to believe, what to feel and what to do. I had to know whether to rage or to worship, to run or to bow, to give up or to go on. I had to know how to shore up my faith. I wrote my praise and lament, my questions and doubts, my grief and my joy. I wrote to give help, hope and comfort to all who are enduring hardship and to those who are seeking to help them. I wrote through seasons of sorrow. It's my joy to welcome you here and to thank you for being here this morning. This is what we're calling the launch event for my book, Seasons of Sorrow. I'll tell you a little bit more about that before too long. But before I do that, I want to let you know about some special guests who will be joining us here today. I'm very thankful to have my friends Alistair Begg and Bob Lapine here today. You know Alistair, of course, from his preaching ministry at Parkside Church near Cleveland, Ohio, and then from his teaching ministry as well at uh, Truth For Life. And then Bob, you would know, is the on-air announcer for Truth For Life, and he's also the teaching pastor at Redeemer Community Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. And since this whole conference revolves around singing, I'm thankful to have my friends from the band City Alight here, and with them as well will be Sandra McCracken. By way of format, just to let you know what will be unfolding here over the next few minutes, I'm going to be reading a short excerpt from the book, and then Bob and Alistair will come out, and Bob will lead us in a brief discussion about God's purpose and God's comfort in the sorrows and the sufferings we inevitably experience in this life, whether that's the sorrow of loss or the sorrow of illness or the sorrow of persecution or whatever else we might experience along our way. And then just before we wrap up, City of Light will come out and share a new song. This is a song meant for congregational singing that they wrote after reading the book. So the song will be inspired or based upon the book. The song is titled In the Valley, 
And this is going to be the debut of the song. It's never been sung in public before. They've never performed it in public before. And then that will bring us to just about 11.30. So you'll still have plenty of time to head out and grab a bite to eat before the first session of the conference begins. And they've asked me if I would tactfully invite you to leave the room when the session is over. They need to clear the room out before they can fill it up again. Uh, When the formalities have wrapped up, I will be sticking around. I'd love to meet you. So the very last set of doors on this side of the room, through there, there's a miniature bookstore that has the book for sale, so you can buy a copy there. I'll be there. I'd love to meet you. And uh, I'll be there for as long as it would be helpful for me to be there. Uh, I have it on good authority. My publisher would really appreciate it if you would pick up a copy or two of the book. And with that, I'd like to read just a short excerpt from the book. Um, the book is written chronologically, beginning at the very, the very night that Nick passed away, and it continues all the way through the first year, and the last chapter is written on the first anniversary of his death. And along the way, I've written these short reflections that just record real time what was going on in our lives, what was going on in our heart as we grappled with our loss. And this chapter was written on a particularly difficult day, so it tells about that day. And it also tells how God just reached out to us and extended his comfort to us on that day. So the chapter is titled, Angels Unaware, and I'll read a portion of it for you. It's too much today. It's too heavy, too sad, too sorrowful. I'm drowning. I'm overwhelmed. I'm going under. I need an angel to come and minister to me in this garden of grief, an Aaron to hold my arms through this long battle, a Jonathan to strengthen me in God. I need a shepherd's staff to pull me close, a father's arms to hold me tight, a bird's wings to shelter me safe. I need something. Please, God, give me something. I thought this would be easier by now. I thought I would have come farther. But today is the day Nick had planned to be married, and the sorrow of it has snuck up on me and caught me unawares. Fresh waves of grief are washing over me as I ponder what should have been, or at least what could have been. This day could have been among my all-time highs, but is instead among my all-time lows. It could have been a day of great celebration, but is instead a day of the deepest sadness. I've mourned what was, But today I mourn what will never be. Aileen comes downstairs to rouse me from my despondency so we can head to the cemetery. We deviate from our usual route to stop at a local florist who's prepared a boutonniere, just the kind Nick would have pinned to his suit today. One white rose, sage green leaves, little sprigs of baby's breath. I picture him in my mind, tall, proud, eager, nervous, He would have looked so handsome. We drive in silence, our tears saying what our mouths cannot. The cemetery is quiet this morning, and it looks like we have the place nearly to ourselves, save for a gardener tending the grass far in the distance. We lay the boutonniere by the grave, and I place a cup of coffee beside it, little gifts from us to him. In my pocket, I have a bundle of papers, the speech I would have delivered at his wedding reception. I've written it for my sake more than his, of course. But even though he can't hear, I still want to say all the things a father would say at his son's wedding. 
I want to express my joy, my love, my pride. I planned to stand here and say it all aloud, but now that it comes to it, I find that I don't have the strength, I don't have the words, I don't have the voice. So I fold it up carefully and nestle it tenderly in the shadow of his gravestone. It will have to remain unread. For a time, we simply stand in silence and gaze at it all, side by side, arm in arm. Together we weep, a broken-hearted father and a broken-hearted mother drowning in our grief. We are dejected, we are lonely, we are abandoned. My God, my God, why? The silence is broken as a voice speaks my name. We turn around to see that a man and woman have approached us from behind. They introduce themselves as fellow Christians who are familiar with my website and who have been reading my articles and family updates. They tell us that their son is buried just a few rows over from Nick and that they are just a little further along the road of grief than we are. Though it is not their custom to visit the cemetery on Saturdays, they felt led to do so on this particular day and at this particular time. They saw us and recognized us, and they made their way over. We try to speak to these kind folk. We want to speak to them, but the words catch in our throats. There's so much we'd like to say, but the words don't come. Grief has rendered us mute. They see our tears, they hear our sorrow, and they understand. They say those precious words, let's pray together. They pray wonderfully, beautifully, passionately. They pray as people who know God as a friend knows a friend. They pray as people who know what it is to be bereaved, who know what it is to be brokenhearted, who know what it is to cry out from the depths of their souls. They pray down heaven's comfort until it falls on us like warm rays of the afternoon sun. As they take their leave, I can hardly believe how God has provided He heard the cry of our hearts and he sent his angels. He knew our need and he dispatched his messengers. And it strikes me that the tears now cascading from my eyes have become tears of joy, tears of gratitude, tears of praise. I have been young and am now old, said David, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken. I should have known. I should have believed. Now, with the strength God has provided, I can read the speech I prepared for my boy, the speech that was meant to be delivered in the hustle and bustle of a reception hall, but must now be delivered in the solitude of a cemetery. I imagine Nick in his suit, Rin in her dress, my girls as bridesmaids, Aileen glowing with pride, and I read. I'll end my little reading there. You can read that letter another time if you so desire. I'm going to invite uh, Bob and Alistair if they would come out at this point. And Bob is going to lead us just in a brief discussion now about God's purpose and God's comfort in our times of suffering, sorrow, and loss. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for this. Uh, the, the book comes out in about 10 days. There are copies here. 
And when we're done this morning, if you're interested in purchasing a copy, out the back corner of the room here, Tim's going to be back there. You can visit with him. You can get copies. They're regularly about $25. They're going to be $15 here. So I uh, just wanted to alert you to that. And I, I think um, any of us in the room, and many of us in the room, were painfully aware of what happened with your son when the news came out. It was one of those things that the body of Christ around the world, um, we, we grieved and mourned with you. And I remember trying to put myself in your shoes and thinking, what would be my emotional responses in those moments? And I thought, first, it would be, no, this can't be. Yeah. And then, second, it would be just the, the why question that plagues all of us. We, our, our mind begs for answers to things that make no sense to us. How did you process both of those? I, I assume you, you went through that same kind of a, a grieving moment. Yeah, definitely there's a sense of this can't possibly be true, and uh, it just doesn't make sense to lose somebody suddenly, to lose somebody at all. Death is just so wrong, so such an intruder into this world, it doesn't make sense, and our minds aren't really able to, to grapple with it in its, its full reality. Um, there was a sense of why, but there was also a sense of God. Uh, we, we really understood from the very beginning that God has the right to do what God will do in God's world. This is my Father's world. And so even though we, we had some sense of wondering why, why did God choose this for us? Why did God choose to take Nick to himself? We didn't spend a lot of time grappling with those questions because we have a pretty good sense of what answers God gives us and what answers he's unlikely to provide. So we were content to just hold on for an answer to that to the future and deal more with the, well, what is God calling us to? How can we, how can we live well um, in this moment? Alistair, in pastoral ministry, you have come alongside many people who have gone through seasons of grief and loss like this and have found themselves plagued with those kinds of issues. What kind of pastoral counsel do you try to provide in those moments? Well, just listening to Tim say that, um, that would not be what... Uh, one would regard as the sort of normal, immediate reaction, that not everybody has the kind of biblical or theological underpinnings to be able to take the why and uh, bring it down, as it were, underneath the the, the reality of God's sovereignty, a, a God whose ways are always righteous and who's kind in all of his works. And I think probably the Uh, There's a couple of things, I think, in walking into the home of bereavement, especially in sudden loss, reminding oneself of uh, Ecclesiastes, you know, that there's a time uh, to speak, there's a time to be quiet. And I'm always struck by the reaction of uh, the friends of Job at the beginning of it all when they set out to uh, seek to express sympathy and comfort to Job. And it says at the end of chapter 2 that they sat on the ground with him for six days and for six nights, saying nothing, because they could see that his grief was so severe. And those of us who talk a lot find it hard to be quiet, and we often think that we are doing more if people can hear us, when in actual fact, often simply our presence among them at that moment is the best that we can do. And I'm sure there were people who came alongside you and handled 
being um, co-grievers with you handled that well, and probably some people who did it a little awkwardly. If you were giving us tips for how we can love someone well in a season of suffering and grief, what tips would you give us? Yeah, uh, I think what Alistair said is true is generally the less said the better. And to speak God's words is usually far more helpful than speaking human words. And so some people are inadvertently hurtful by bringing silliness, nonsense. And I think we were able to, to filter that through. Um, but a lot of people did want to bring comfort by talking about birds and clouds and other ways that maybe your son is manifesting himself in your life and trying to assure you he's okay and things like that. But far better is just to have people come to us and bring God's words and bring a hot meal. Um, the, the, in this particular loss, I think the family is so overwhelmed by the loss that they can't carry out normal functions often. So being able to say, can I do your shopping for you? Can I bring you a hot meal at dinner time?" is really, really helpful, just removing some of that, that burden. But mostly bring truth. And, and maybe not even ask, can I, but just do sure. it. Yeah. Because in the moment, you don't know whether they can or should or what you need from the grocery store. Right. Yeah. And we're very accustomed culturally to saying no. We don't like to be the person who's receiving. We like to be the one who's giving. But to be able to just receive. And I think that's a responsibility that falls to those who are grieving, to just now be willing to let the body of Christ be the body of Christ and not inadvertently push them away in our Western self-sufficiency. I'm sure you told one another over and over again, we grieve, but not as those who have no hope. And you were really preaching to yourself in that moment, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah, what we found very quickly is that we compare it to two streams. You have joy and you have sorrow, and they're flowing together, and those aren't streams that ever come into, turn into one thing. So even in life, you're, you're sorrowful and you're joyful at the same time. So what is our goal as parents? To, to raise our kids and to, to raise our kids in the Lord and ultimately for our kids to go and be with the Lord. We had the, the joy of seeing a son go to be with the Lord and have full confidence that, that that's where he is. So there's great joy in that, and yet the deep sorrow of this isn't the way that we expected this would happen, not the way we wanted this to happen. So not trying to put aside the joy, not trying to put away the grief, but to allow both of them to be present. Alistair, you mentioned Ecclesiastes 3. Uh, Later, Solomon says, uh, do you you think Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes? We should ask that at the beginning. I don't think this is a question for today. (laughs) (laughs) The preacher. (laughs) The the preacher in chapter 7 says... It is better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting because the living take it to heart. What, what should we take away from what the Bible says there? Well, uh, first of all, I wouldn't want to uh, call on Tim in the immediacy of his laws and uh, try and uh, read to him Ecclesiastes 7. Right. Um, the context, of course, of Ecclesiastes 7 is a reminder to us of the fleeting nature of life And that just in the same way as uh, Shakespeare's comedies have an immediate uh, impact that uh, induces joy and frivolity, uh, it's a bit like a milkshake. It has no lasting impact, whereas his tragedies live with you and the soliloquies live with you. And I think what Solomon or whoever it is is uh, writing there is is writing to to confront uh, man as man 
uh, with the fact that the very things that we seek to run away from are often the things that make us, that the lessons that we don't want to learn are often the lessons that we do need to learn. And certainly uh, in this past period of time, if there is one great lesson that has come out of this COVID experience is that uh, the Western world is manifestly scared to death of death and has no answer to the question. And it's in that kind of context that I think in a well-conducted funeral, and I mean a well-conducted funeral, uh, there is the opportunity not only to seek to encourage those who are bereaved, but also with their permission to speak um, graciously but very pointedly to those who are living as if there is no terminus to be faced. I had a friend say to me recently, um, he does not think that most of us Protestants have a good theology of suffering the way that some traditions emphasize that. Would you agree with that? Yeah, we just generally don't have much experience at it. One of the things I did in the early days after Nick I went to be with the Lord was I, I went to old books where the loss of a child in the 1700s, 1800s, this was so common. What's unusual to us was common to them. And so I found by going back in history, I found real friends there, people who could really commiserate with me and who really knew what, was go- what I was going through. But that's less common today just because of the, the privileges we enjoy this time and place. I, I remember Dennis Rainey coming back from a visit to the Cotswolds, and he had been in one of those old cemeteries by the churchyard in the Cotswolds. And he said there were three headstones there, um, a mother and a child who had died in the same season, and then a father who had died a few years later. And on one of the gravestones was inscribed, we cannot, Lord, thy purpose see, but all is well that's done by thee. And again, these are things we have to tell ourselves are true, even when our emotions are screaming at us, this is wrong, this is painful, I don't like this. Um, talk about the discipline of counseling your soul in, in a season of suffering. I want to just go back and say, I think there's such a value, such ministry in putting significant words on gravestones. They will by far outlast the, any memory of the person. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've just read words like that on a, a gravestone that might have been hundreds of years old and just been encouraged. It's so comforting to say there's a believer lying there. This is one of my brothers or sisters. Um, it's so much better than something about you know getting your angel's wings or something too, but just truth. Yes. Placing that I think is a real blessing, real encouragement. And now I've forgotten the question you asked. <laughs> <laughs> so preaching to yourself, the oh, yeah. discipline of preaching to yourself, yeah. how did you engage with that? Yeah, I'm so thankful that we were raised in a tradition that taught sound doctrine. So I met a bunch of Dutch people here. You know what your only comfort in life and death is, don't you? Because you were, there you go. We belong body and soul. Right, right? Yeah. life and death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So right out of the gate, question and answer one, what is your only comfort in life and death? I'm not my own. I belong to Jesus Christ. I mean, what, what truth to rely on in your deepest moment of grief than that, to have that kind of theology nailed down in your heart, in your mind as you go into tragedy. You don't want to, to suffer a deep loss and now to have to think, well, what, how can I find comfort? Or is God sovereign? Or is God good? It's to have your doctrine in place and then you just need to enact it. You just need to believe it in that moment. 
but I was just so thankful to have all that. To we believe this, we know this is true. Are we going to believe it's true in this? You don't build a foundation in the storm, right? You build the foundation right. for the storm, yeah. and then you yeah. stand on it when it comes. Yeah, Alistair, exactly. as the pastor of a large congregation, when death visits your congregation, how do you encourage your parishioners, your congregants, to respond in that? How how should the church respond? Well, uh, you know, to Tim's point, uh, it was Baxter or someone like him who said that the responsibility of the pastor was to prepare his people for death, to prepare his people how to die. Um, uh, Some of uh, my colleagues at Parkside have regarded it as a strange idea that we would put a graveyard into our church property, a kind of strange use of space. But to Tim's point, uh, I think there is great wisdom in it in that the church, the living church of Jesus Christ, is the only entity on earth that has any answer to the question of death. And um, so what do we do in preparing our people? Well, we do what um, uh, Tim is saying, that we're trying to teach the Bible in such a way that they're laying hold of these things, that they are making them their own. But I would say, too, that even when people have done that, when, if you like, their heads are in gear, when their emotions are so fractured, when they are so overwhelmed, um, I, I found that I have to learn to be far more patient than I am by nature in waiting for, if you like, their hearts to catch up with their heads so that what they know to be true has now uh, taken on, if you like, an emotional and a visceral dimension to it. <clears throat> and in my experience, not everybody grieves at the same pace. And since not everybody starts from the same position, um, that's where the body itself comes into play, isn't it? The pastoral role is uh, as significant as one is allowed to play. But the way in which the members of the church family gather around and support one another is uh, so uh, wonderfully necessary and so vitally important. And, and we have to be wise to, to know how to and when to bring truth as opposed to when to just sit in silence and to discern that moment. Um, thoughts on that? Well, yeah, you know, as we flew in here this morning, um, I, I was remarking on um, how wonderful it is that they have this thing called the uh, ILS, Uh, the instrument landing system. And uh, I believe it was discovered or used first in 1929. I thought it was fairly recent. But, um, you know, and what those guys are doing is they're flying the instruments. And um, they're not looking out the window. At least they shouldn't be. They're certainly not looking around to find if the passengers are voicing their approval. Uh, They're simply flying the instruments. And it's a lesson that we have to do all the time for ourselves. I mean, it's the same, it's the same issue in the face of temptation. It's very alluring, very appealing. Fly the instruments. Do what you're told. And it may seem rather hard at times, but I think people will look back and say, you know, uh, when, I, when, I, you know when, I, uh, when I couldn't feel his presence, I could trust his word. Uh, Tim, you talk in the book about the idea of stewarding your suffering, which I thought, I don't know that I've stopped to consider that suffering is a gift from God that I'm to steward well, but I was reminded, is it 
1 Corinthians 1 that talks about how we're to comfort others with the comfort we've received? Yeah, well, I think we're all looking forward to hearing Johnny Erickson Tata sing before long and what she done but stewarded her suffering very well for this very long time and been such a blessing and inspiration to so many of us because of that. So she didn't receive it as a curse. She didn't receive it as something Satan had decided was, was right for her. She received her suffering as something God had entrusted to her. And so I think for all of us, it may take time, but eventually as we go through loss, as we go through sorrow, we realize there's something here that's meant for others. And I, I, the, the excerpt I read from the book was just that. Here is this couple who had grieved deeply, who, who, who was just a little bit ahead of us on the road of suffering, but they had something to give us. They had something to bless us with. And so they were faithful with the, the sorrow God had entrusted to them. So if we understand the sovereignty of God, we understand that God is in control, that, that no death happens apart from it being his will in some way, no matter what other cause is involved in that death, then all we can do is, is receive it as something meaningful, something precious from him. And Alistair, um, we never want to minimize the grief that someone is going through, and lament is a biblical theme that God calls us to, and yet I, I have looked at friends and said, you know, the Bible says these are light and momentary afflictions that are producing in us an eternal weight of glory. Um, again, I don't want to rush to that and, and try to minimize the reality of the pain, but sometime we have to get there, don't we? Yeah, we do, I suppose. Um, it's, I find it relatively easy to be, you know, really clever about things I don't know about. And... Um, I'm reminded too about, you know, the old Indian proverb about not having walked in somebody's moccasins and yet at the same time, it, it really is a skill, isn't it, in, in seeking to know uh, when to encourage and when at the same time to give a very godly kick in the seat of the pants, you know, to see that uh, the person uh, could, is, is now uh, spending all of his time in remembrance, and so it, it's remembrance time. It's always remembrance Sunday. It's always the remembrance year. It's always the remembrance. And for that person, there's no present and there's no tomorrow. And of course, the Bible encourages us to reflect on these things, to lament, but it's always a today book. It's always today is the day of salvation. So today is the day of salvation that he has saved us and he has uh, taken my loved one to himself and he is this God who has made himself known. I, 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 yeah, I, it's hard. It's hard. You know, I think it's just as I'm listening to you both talk, uh, you know, the hymns have been a big help to me, as I know they are to Tim. You know, and, and the hymn that begins, My God, I thank thee who has made the earth so bright, goes on to thank God for all these things. And then it has the verse that says, I thank thee too that all my joy is touched with pain that shadows fall on brightest hours and thorns remain so that earth's bliss may be my guide and not my chain. And how to encourage one another to move on from that, if you like. At what point along the journey do we cut the chain and move on? Um, sometimes I think we get it right. Other times we get it wrong and others pick it up for us. One thing we've been 
surprised to learn is that there can be a little bit of a community in a cemetery. And you notice that with cemeteries, people who have just died or buried generally in the same area, and the people who visit most tend to be the people whose loss is the most recent. And so you have these little parts of the cemetery where people tend to gather. And um, Aileen is far, uh, she goes to the cemetery quite a bit more than I do, and is just more friendly and accessible, so she spends more time speaking to people there, but it's been such an affirmation to us that the gospel really does give us hope. Um, to, to That one couple I, I read about, they had hope, they had something to give, but so many other people are just in utter despair. They're, they're years farther along in terms of the timing, but they're still just at the very beginning of, of grief, still just so deep in their sorrow, unable to move forward, unable to, to breathe, really. So it's been such a blessing to us to see that, that the, the, the gospel really does give us deep answers, deep hope, deep confidence, and is, is worth believing. It truly makes such a difference in our, in our grief and sorrow. And to read in the scriptures that God describes himself as the God of all comfort. Yeah who comforts us, that designation for God to be able to share that with others in their grief is, is an evangelistic opportunity, isn't it? It is, absolutely. And to be able to show that, I think as much as anything, to, to show that we are progressing. We're, we're still sad. There's, there's no doubt we're still deep in grief, but we have hope. We're looking forward to the future. We're not, as Alistair said, we're not stuck in the past. We're moving forward. We're truly rejoicing. We're thankful. We're... Um, even as we grieve. And to be able to just express some of that, I think can be really, really helpful to people. What do you do with holidays and birthdays and landmarks that are reminders that make it fresh again? Yeah, we're still relatively new to this. So we're only two years in. Uh, we do mark holidays and um, birthdays, etc., And we usually just go and pay a visit. Usually the lead up is worse than the day itself, we find. When the day comes, we're we're usually feeling a little bit better. But we allow ourselves to grieve because it's right and it's good to grieve. Death is an ugly intruder in the world and death exists because sin exists. So we don't have to pretend that death isn't terrible. Yet we also have, have true joy and hope because for the Christian, death is simply the pathway to, to true life. And so we try and hold those griefs and joys in balance with one another and experience the grief but speak of the joy. Alistair, you quoted a hymn. We were all surprised it wasn't a Paul Simon song that you quoted. It was a a hymn. But hymnody is one of the gifts of God. As you were quoting, I was thinking of Cooper's line, behind the frowning providence he hides, um, what is it, a smiling face. Yeah, it's, again, those lyrics that come to mind are a great source of comfort to us, aren't they? Indeed they are. And, you know, listening to what Tim is saying now has such a ring of authenticity to it. Uh, this is, we're not three fellows up here who have done a course in systematic theology and have paid particular attention to the, <clears throat> the end story of the drama. And uh, as a result, we're just uh, here pontificating. So it really does, you know, the, the, the providences of God are seldom self-interpreting. You know, when we ask the question, why has this happened to me? The answer may not actually have very much to do with me at all. And it is a very strange thing, and it is a very 
I don't know quite what it is, but to sit here with Tim and this book and to realize what it has meant for Tim and his family to go through in order that he might be able to be a voice into the lives of all of us. And uh, uh, hymns, uh, poetry that has been well-crafted and is theologically, biblically grounded uh, does that because it drives home to us often in a way that is far more memorable uh, the truths that we need at these uh, very crucial moments in our lives. Tim, you had a moment of providence in the midst of this that you write about that was a, a gift from God for you. Yeah, it was, it was just the Lord provided on that day. And he hasn't always provided in, in ways that just undeniable. Uh, he's been a very constant friend. But um, what God has not done is he hasn't performed miracles. He hasn't given us a voice from the sky. He hasn't given us fresh revelation. He hasn't needed to. He's given us the worship of the local church, which is just... Being in church, the, the, the constant, steady, ordinary means of grace have been just such a blessing. Gathering with Christians, singing the, just this bounty of great songs we have available to us. And then God just meeting us through his providence as he did that day. There's been a couple of occasions where he met us just that obviously and just provided what we needed. Through it all, we've never had to doubt God's love for us or God's care for us. He's, he's been so very kind to us through our sorrow. And this is a conference about singing. How has singing and music been used in yours and Aline's lives? So it's been almost two years. I think it's rare we get through a Sunday without crying, usually during the music, because there's something... At our church, we try to sing just the best of the songs we can find, and those songs almost always follow a pattern. They start in the past, and they move toward the future. And it's as we we sing of sorrows or we sing of um, gospel and we move toward the future, uh, being reunited in heaven... Man, does that ever tug on the heartstrings when you're, you're looking forward? Your, your mind is drawn to those people you've loved and lost, those people who are truly, genuinely waiting for you in the arms of the Lord. So um, music has been so important and such a blessing, but it engages the heart on such a deep level that it often then also motivates the tears to start. And that's okay. We're, we're good with, uh, with crying in church. We're good with crying around the people we love. And uh, I've learned to cry through this experience. I wasn't a crier before. I am now, and I'm okay with it. Um, But we on earth have union with God, the three-in-one, and mystic, sweet communion with those whose rest is one. I'm not sure I know what that means, but I really like the idea of it, (laughs) that somehow or another, somehow or another, um, Tim's son, and my mom, and so many of our loved ones in Christ, um, without having to look down on us, because that would not be heaven, but somehow or another uh, join with angels and archangels, and uh, they're singing the same songs. They're singing songs that angels can't sing, because angels have never known redemption. But we do still say, angels help us to adore him, ye behold him face to face. Yeah, songs, vital. 
we sang that very song, Church is One Foundation, on Sunday, and I okay. cried when we got to that part. There you go. Just to think about the mystic, sweet communion we share with those whose rest is one. Yeah. yeah. Glad to cry on that. That's... You mentioned a song we're going to hear this morning. Tell us how this song came to be. Great. Good. Yeah. So... Um, in the aftermath of, of all this, I started writing the book, and uh, the band City of Light got in touch and asked if I'd like to collaborate on a song. And I think my message back to them said, I mean, it sounds great. I don't sing. I don't write songs. I don't play an instrument. So uh, it's hard to imagine how a collaboration would come about. But I did send them, I did send them the book, and they read the book. And uh, they just asked, what, what's on your heart these days? And so I sent them the book, and they read the book. And they wrote a song that was based on the book or inspired by the book or was trying to share some of the prominent messages from the book. And so uh, that's going to be released at the same day as the, as the book, September 13th. It'll be on all your musical platforms. But they are going to perform it today. Do you want me to? And, and we are, all of us, grateful for them and for the gift that they are to the body of Christ around the world. And we sang two of their songs yesterday morning in church, and I'm sure you have been singing them regularly, but uh, why don't I let you introduce them, and we'll, we'll step Great. aside here. Great. Thank, Thank you. you. 